How much do sports mean to a city? What do sports mean to a city? The energy and excitement that begins to permeate everyday life when your team is winning is something to behold. Today I'm heading to watch the Raptors, and it's been a bit of a distraction, I have to confess, all day long. Last year, when the Jays were winning in Toronto, marching towards the World Series, I reached a moment where I just started washing my son's Jays shirt every night because I knew he was going to put it right back on every morning. We hit that moment as a city where it became perfectly normal, expected even, to wear your jersey to work on game day. The camaraderie this generated was tangible, real, good for our shared psyche as a city. But sports teams sometimes have precarious relationships with their cities. Hometown pride and promises of economic growth are sometimes leveraged to garner billions for new stadium mega projects, taking public funds away from other pressing needs like housing and transit. Sometimes the dream, the promise for the city does not materialize. Regardless of what happens on the field, the wins off the field are sometimes questionable. An article in The Guardian recently called out for the sharing of photos of abandoned sports stadiums. Expensive sports stadiums in cities around the world lie unused and decaying, the article shouted, and are remnants of ambitious urban building projects. Here, the dream didn't hold, and the municipality is left not only holding the bag, but often with a boondoggle of a facility that is difficult to adapt for other uses. So which is it? Are sports teams good for cities? I've managed to dig up the perfect guest for this episode. I'm Jennifer Keysmat, and this is Invisible City. I'm joined today by past MLSE CEO, Richard Petty. Now, Richard was named president and CEO of the Toronto Raptors in November of 1996. After Maple Leaf Gardens purchased the Toronto Raptors and the arena the team was building, the Air Canada Centre, Petty took control of the renamed Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment in October of 98, serving as president and CEO for 14 years until his retirement in 2011. He oversaw all business and team operations related to the Maple Leafs, the Toronto Raptors, Toronto FC, the Toronto Marlies, and the operations of Air Canada Centre and BMO Field. He also oversaw the operation of the organization's three television stations, as well as Maple Leaf Square. So I think it's safe to say he knows a bit about sports and cities. But Richard has also written a couple of books since then, both of which I recommend, Dream Job, about his time at MLSE, and 21 Leadership Lessons, drawing on the expertise he has generated throughout the life of his career. Now, I met Richard a few years ago, and he sent me a copy of a chapter that had been edited out of his book by his publishers. Maybe the most important chapter of all from my perspective, which was a chapter on city building. Now, the cool thing about the legacy of sports empire building in Toronto, I would argue, 
Is the way that we got city building projects right? And Richard really played a critical role in all of that. We've been able to weave together sports infrastructure into the urban fabric of the city to create places for gathering, for celebrating, and of course, sometimes for mourning. Our stadiums and event venues are cheek by jowl, acting as the lifeblood in the center of the city. Following any sporting event, whether it's the Raptors, the Leafs, a Jays game, waves of fans decked out in fan wear feather out across the city, on foot, on transit, shopping, getting food, or just watching other people go by. Here's my conversation with Richard Petty. So Richard, let's start at the beginning. How much do sports really matter to a city? I think they're an important part. Uh, I think they actually add to the livability of a city. There's lots of economic benefits, jobs, uh, the taxes that the city or province earns off the, the numerous things that are sold in, in a sports enterprise. It uh, gives the city visibility, uh, gives the city awareness, um, attracts tourism, and I think it does add to, again, the livability that people, they have something to identify with, they have something to brag about. So all in all, I, I think it really adds to the, the uh, being a great city. Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. But I do think that, um, you know, those are some ki- pretty compelling reasons. Um, it's about your psyche. It's about economic vitality. It's about identity. I think that might be some of the reasons why cities sometimes go down the wrong track when it comes to sports as well. But let's, let's come back to that in a minute. Um, what about with respect to the design and function of the city? Um, are cities really impacted uh, as they try to integrate sports facilities into how they design and operate their city? Is it something tangential? Is it something central? Well, I think some of the big massive projects, like the one going on in Detroit with the Red Wings, maybe what's going on in Edmonton, they're pretty massive and have a big impact. What we've done in Toronto is just kind of add-ons, um, you know, BMO Field, maybe Maple Leaf Square and, and Air Canada Centre were part of a, a big impact on the city. But in, in Toronto's case, I think they slip in. And I think they do in most cities because, you know, stadiums don't really have a long life. I think, by the way, they should have a much longer life. and We could talk about that. So they're almost added afterwards. In the case of Edmonton, and uh, maybe Ottawa, what we're hearing about, that's a chance to make a major change in the city. So there is an opportunity to leverage the infrastructure to meet other city building objectives. Yes. Who's, who's done a good job of that? Who's done a good job of that? I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I can answer that. I think we added at Air Canada Centre, we added to it. We continued the, the past system. We, we put a Maple Leaf Square, which is a gathering place. Uh, we did all of that. But, you know, actually leveraging, I don't know. I think uh, we did as probably as well as anyone who's just kind of without a major, major project uh, slipped into the, the fabric of the city. It's interesting that you use that language because if we do think about the Toronto context as an example, you've got the Sky Dome right in the heart of the downtown, uh, pretty big infrastructure. Um, I think in retrospect, it's possible to say it slipped into the fabric of the city because the way the city has grown up around it and because of the location that was chosen. That's sort of an example of doing a really good job of weaving what is a really 
pretty obtrusive use right into the heart of the city. Well, I was there when we opened it in 89. I, I ran it for four years. There was nothing around it. Yeah, nothing yeah. at all. I mean, all what's it called? City Place now that's mm-hmm. all around it. And there, I remember Labatt's was supposed to move their head office, build a head office around it. That never happens for, for decades. I think it is a couple decades. So, yeah, that kind of snuck in an old railroad land. And, and it was a very complex, you know, government, all kinds of legal issues with that that who knows might still exist today. So, yeah, it kind of snuck into wasteland. A master plan grew around it. And now you have a context where you have a neighborhood. You know, you can literally, you literally have people watching games from the balconies of their condos. There's a library, there's a school. There's a lot of great amenities now. There's a lot of great amenities. But then on the flip side, you also have all of these really critical tourist usage. You've got the CN Tower. You've got Ripley's Aquarium. You've got Roundhouse Park, which is a major event space. So it's actually become, the public realm has become very seamless, whereas in many instances you see uh, a large stadium of that nature surrounded by surface parking and sort of not so multifunctional. Well, what happens is a lot of stadiums, even to this day, are the locations based on real estate instead of based on what is the best location for it? What does the best things for the city? Ottawa, horrible mistake. What is the Ottawa mistake 30 years ago? Uh, Phoenix, why did the Phoenix hockey team to this day have problems? They, they did on a real estate play. I can remember when it was approved by the NHL, I turned to my friend with the Detroit Red Wings and I said, probably about the fourth owner of this team is going to make money. In the meantime, they're all going to lose money. I was wrong. They continue to lose money. Oh, so they, they were doing, they, they were there for the wrong decisions. When we decided to bring uh, Toronto FC to town, the only, I would not have brought the team to town if I could not put an exhibition place. We, we talked about York University. We talked about Downsview. It had to be downtown in the fabric of the city. Uh, I mentioned in my intro the chapter in your book, uh, Dream Job, um, what I would call the missing chapter, which is the chapter that you wrote <laughs> uh, about city building that didn't get integrated into the book. You've just talked about stadium building as being a real estate play. Um, It's a variety of different plays, but it's also the way we integrate these facilities into our our communities just really linked up to a whole variety of city building objectives. Can you tell us a little bit of the narrative in your mind? You've mentioned uh, um, exhibition place. Tell us a little bit the narrative in your mind as you were going through the process, for example, of finding a new facility, building a new facility for the Toronto Maple Leafs and uh, what some of the thinking was. What was your framework, if you will, for that decision-making? To be clear, I do not believe you pick a location because it's going to be a great real estate play. You do what's right for the fans, uh, the things that make it most accessible. So let's talk about them. Um, The Bitov Slate Group had already chosen the postal building where Air Canada Centre is. I loved it immediately. The Maple Leafs were looking at putting a stadium down at Exhibition Place. The owners of the Maple Leafs at that time were teachers, TD and Larry Tannenbaum. And I got the CEO at that time, Claude Lamoureux, to come and walk the building with me. And one of the things I did was I timed how long it took to get off the subway and get into the first seat. It was something like 45 seconds. And I walked <laughs> him around. It was a historic building. Uh, it was right there at the, the convergence of everything. And uh, that, teachers and TD, and then Larry, uh, 
grasp it very quickly that that was the right location. Um, so it was there for everything. And, you know, people can walk. I used to say that people left their coats at their office instead of bringing their big winter coats because they could use the pass system. There's so much going for it. And parking, everyone worried about parking, but that all straightened itself out too. With BMO Field, I, I just became a real fan of venues that were downtown. And, you know, I, I'm from the Windsor area and they made a big mistake. They put their, their new hockey rink way out of town when downtown could have used that that energy and that stimulus to revitalize a very tired downtown. BMO Field, I, I just thought it was the place to be. They could walk, and, and they even walk more. The, the soccer fans, football fans, as I like to call them, you could see them all kind of moving towards, like big tides. <laughs> and there are stadiums that do it even better, and I think it's Seattle. Uh, they actually gather in a certain place and march to their soccer games. So, so yeah, it was, it was the only place I, I really... I don't think I would have recommended it to the board if we'd put it in Downsview or York. And we could have. There was people wanting us to do that. Well, it's amazing the critical mass that has been created in the core from the Arcanda Center and the Sky Dome in downtown Toronto. Uh, it's fascinating to me to be sitting there at a Blue Jay game and knowing that there's 40,000 people in that facility. Size of Peterborough. And they're the size of a small town. Mm -hmm. And that those 40,000 people are going to exit the building at the same time and be absorbed by the city around them. Like I, you know, as a planner, it sort of boggles the mind. I'm like, where's everybody going to go? How's this going to work? Well, you should have seen the transit plans that I inherited in 1989. We were to put barriers along uh, Front Street to block off a lane so people could walk on the street. And we had to put those barriers up. I think if it, we had a crowd of over 30,000, and as you can appreciate, every baseball game was over 30,000 those days. Right. And it was incredible cost and lots of paid duty. And it, it was, it, we didn't need it. People find their way. And, uh, they, and, and you know, there's less and less parking down there. And yet, they're still drawing good crowds when they're winning. Well, the amazing thing is, is uh, on a game day um, in a city where you have tens of thousands of people wandering the streets, it's fascinating to see how far you can identify people and where they've been by the jersey they're wearing. <laughs> and you start to see the impact. Wow, people are like 20 blocks, 20 blocks away. Of course, you know, you can see the density thin out the farther away you get from the stadium, but 20 blocks away, you still see people wearing jerseys. And it's kind of from an urban planning perspective, it's a fascinating way of tracking pedestrian movement. Well, I've got a great story. I don't know if they're still doing it, but if we scored 100 points, you get a free slice of pizza. Right. And uh, I was present at that time, and I lived up in uh, uh, north of um, uh, Davenport. And I can remember, you know, going into the locker room at the end of the game and, you know, doing some things, but, you know, getting in my car and, and going home. And I stopped for, at a pizza place north of Davenport and there were already Raptor fans and they're getting their free pizza. So you're right. They moved very quickly and I'm, I'm delighted. I think they moved from uh, public transit. Well, I think so too. That's the other piece of the puzzle here, which is this uh, kind of planning where you're creating really, really high volumes of visitors that are happening in waves really only works when you do have, you know, you said, oh, the parking wasn't an issue. Well, the parking wasn't an issue because the transit infrastructure was already in place. Mm -hmm. So those two things are conjoined. Without the transit infrastructure, you can't actually create these large-scale destinations uh, because you just can't move people around. And that was there right from the start at Air Canada Centre. I would agree that there was a lot of people that tried to park at Exhibition Place and get into horrendous parking and, you know, parking, you know, car 
cars all jammed up for half an hour, 45 minutes after a game. But that kind of worked itself out. And, and they've actually reduced parking with the Raptors practice facility there, the, the hotel going in. There's less and less. Well, and right now we're working on a waterfront transit plan that's all about bringing... bringing and you're uh, going to straighten out transit. that King Street uh, uh, sub streetcar and, too, and, aren't you? And we're looking at... Yeah, well, you know, anywhere, anywhere we can improve transit, that's, that's the goal. Uh, so we've talked a lot about Toronto. Um, there's some other great sports cities, and I'd like to pick them apart a little bit. Uh, tell me a bit about your thoughts on Boston. Well, Boston's my, probably knowing that you'd ask that question, I think that's the best sports town. And I think there's a lot of things going for it. There's an original six hockey team. There's, I don't know when the Boston Celtics started. I don't know if they started in the forties, but they're like an original six uh, basketball team. Uh, and both programs have been, both teams have been successful. You've got the New England Patriots, uh, also successful. So you've got winning franchises with a sense of history. Now, Boston's moved into a new facility in the last 10 years. There was the famous Boston Gardens. They did that pretty seamlessly. Uh, Fenway Park's been around forever. Forever. Like forever, and I've toured that. And it's hard to believe that that still exists when people are you know, moving out of stadiums that are only 30 years old because there's not enough suites. They've just kept that. And I think it adds to the magic. The other thing they have, they have really stable, visible owners. Um, you know, and all of those teams, they've been around for a while and, you know, they put their money where their mouth is and they're visible and, you know, they celebrate when they're good and they take the pain when they're bad. So that's really interesting. Um, one of the things that I hadn't really thought about before that you've just touched on is the importance of history. Uh, that there's there's a legacy that gets built over time, and Boston has that. Mm -hmm. um, that there's a uh, there's a shared story about the city that gets told through the sports team that becomes really entwined with its identity. You mentioned the notion well, of well, identity. Well, think of it in Patriots beginning. Day. What is it, the second Monday in April every year? The Boston Marathon. Yes, and yeah. the Red Sox play at, at twelve o'clock that day, all in one city. And, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people on the street watching the marathoners. And there's a whole, you know, probably 25, 30,000 going to the baseball game and all the people that try to sell you. So the city, it's all what's been going on for years. It's a wonderful yeah, experience. It is. It is amazing. So let's take that one step further. Um, what does a city need to do really to capitalize in the energy and momentum that can come from its sports teams? I, I believe they have to be sports friendly. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to talk later about how much they contribute financially because that's a whole different story. You know, it's got to be policing. You know, when Skydome opened, uh, the policing rules and obligations were onerous. And, you know, don't go crazy. Don't go too anal on the policing. Be responsible, but accommodating on alcohol rules. Have the transit in place. Uh, if they're building it, again, don't be too anal. I mean, you know, don't, if you, you throw too many small things at them, it gets to be very user unfriendly. So I think there's a, there's a whole attitude that we're going to work with these people and make this happen. Because it is a catch 22. I think, uh, you know, a generation ago, um, definitely in the sixties, there was a lot about city design that was geared towards separating people, ensuring that there weren't places to gather uh, because of the protest movement movements that existed, mm -hmm. for example. Um, and there's lots of remnants in that in the way North American cities are designed. By its very nature, uh, sport is about gathering. Um, it's about a shared experience. It involves public space. 
inevitably, there's a whole series of activities that come with that that can be problematic. And how cities respond to that is what I'm hearing you say is going to determine whether, you know, there's a good energy yeah, in the city. Don't over-police it. Don't be paranoid. Like Maple Leaf Square or the, the Raptor Zone or whatever they call it right now. Isn't it Jurassic Park? Jurassic Park. That was part of our dream right at the start, that we wanted a gathering place for thousands of people. And it, it unfolded that way. So, you know, I was, I'm proud every night that that was part of our dream and it's happened. I can tell you a little story about the video board. We wanted a major video board to watch it. And, and we had one budgeted and it was of a certain size. And I went out to LA to see LA Live, which is a, a major entertainment project out there, very successful. And uh, I came back with, and I told my guys, I've got video board envy. <laughs> and uh, we mocked, we actually mocked up, imagine mocking up three different sizes of video boards. I stood at the corner of York and Bremner and said, I'll take that one. <laughs> and uh, now I kick myself, I didn't take the biggest one. I joked that uh, Commander Hadfield could see it from the space shuttle. You know, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, so that gathering place has worked out really well. And, and, and there's, there's no issues down there. I mean, you, you could probably f arrest someone for alcohol or marijuana, but don't. I mean, look at that. They're all out there, rain or shine. They're having a great time. They just, they, they leave peaceably. It's wonderful. It's interesting though, because I think that's, uh, that's true in the Canadian context. Oh, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> You hear some stories um, about some countries, uh, Western European countries and their soccer games, um, where the issues around fans interacting and A lot of cars get burned down after an NBA championship or NHL in the United States. And well, listen, we had it in Vancouver. That That's was right, when we did. The Boston beat Vancouver and that got out of hand. But again, I don't think you make every decision based on the worst case. Well, those might be exceptions as mm -hmm. well, right? We can pull out those stories precisely because they are unique and uh, precisely because they're not desirable, but they are pretty isolated if you think about it. I, I, I felt that way. You know, we we had a little bit of rowdiness, uh, um, Jay's, what was it, game five in the um, uh, Eastern Division finals last year when the beer cans were being thrown onto the field. It started to get a little bit rowdy. And you've got that many people they in a small space. probably shouldn't be. See, a full beer can is 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 a is a projectile. Yeah. I'm surprised that they don't pour it into a glass. So automatically, I'm thinking that you've got to, You don't give away mini basketballs before a game. Right. You give it away when they're leaving. Anything you can throw, you give away after. And it's amazing that sports teams forget it every year. It is amazing. That's the operator in you. Um, thing, I would never think about a detail well, like that. Well, you remember the famous seat cushions at BMO Field. Right. And, you know, I had a wonderful team working on the Toronto FC launch. And I, I walked to the game because I lived on the waterfront at that time. Literally walked the mile. And I get in and they handed me a seat cushion. I didn't know. I goes, oh, I said to my wife, Colleen, this is not going to be good. And when Danny Dicchio <laughs> scored at the 22nd minute, and they boom. came. Now, the beauty was that it was captured on every sports channel all through the world. This was a great <laughs> photo op. The commissioner phoned me to complain the other day, but to this day, I, I think he was smiling. David Stern would have been less accommodating. Um, Don Garber was very accommodating, but yeah, you don't do those things. But that was just a matter of, these are the operational details. Yeah. Are you, the difference between you know, things working got and a, not working? You've got a green, if you've got, haven't, don't, pardon me, you don't have continuity uh, on your operation staff, they're going to 
live the past again. <laughs> so let's go back for a minute. You mentioned the issue of money. Um, in my opinion, there really hasn't been enough debate about the amount of public money that gets spent to subsidize sports facilities. Um, you know, I'm obviously a huge fan of um, the role and the opportunity that sports can play in a city. But at the same time, there's a public discourse, I think, that's required around the money that's often spent to lure teams and to build new facilities and the trade-offs associated with that. I'm wondering if you can comment in your experience, uh, you know, do we need to be having this conversation? Is it a real conversation or has that ship sailed? I think the trend is going that the cities are waking up to this because I think it's been completely out of control. Um, you take uh, St. Louis. They just lost their football team to L.A. They kept their football team two decades ago by floating a, a bond and stuff. That bond's not even paid off. And now they've they've been blackmailed to try to get, redo it, and they leave. So that's what's happening in a lot of the leagues. And even the commissioners participate in it. They say, well, you're going to lose your team unless you build them a new stadium. No study that I've read, and it's not exhaustive, um, points that spending hundreds of millions of dollars to keep a to keep a team or to build them a new facility pays out. I've seen the financial models, and they always say it's going to be like 400 full time jobs. If you're taking 400 full time people running that stadium, you've got probably about 275 too many. So that's all inflated, mm -hmm. and you're going to do it on you know, just the model doesn't work. It it doesn't prove to it. And frankly, now with the appreciation of um, the values of franchises and the wealth of the owners, I think they can afford that on their own. And that's what we did with, Ma with uh, Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment. You know, we built about a billion dollars of infrastructure, BMO Field, Maple Leaf Square, uh, Air Canada Centre, major revitalizations of Air Canada Centre, all of our money, own money but 5%. So we spent 95% of that billion, we did it ourselves. And it was good business. I mean, I could prove to our owners that they were getting a return on business. What I see happening in a lot of places, even now, in the owners of Calgary and and, and Calgary, Brian Burke's not going to like me saying this, Calgary and Edmonton, <laughs> uh, I think their owners could step up a lot more. I, I you know, Pelado makes sure they, they build a brand new stadium for a potential hockey team in Quebec City. You know, why did Quebec City pay for all of that? And now it's going to be very interesting to watch uh, what's going to happen in Ottawa. Um, you know, they say, well, they're doing all this other stuff around. Well, we did all of that other stuff around, and we paid for that too. You know, it's really interesting because it's very compelling. Uh, you have a city that wants a team, wants to make sure they're retaining that team. Uh, you get this pressure. It's a negotiation oh, right? yeah. at the end of the day. You get this, this pressure. And often you have municipalities that quite frankly are um, very um, susceptible to some of the threats, if you will, uh, around a team leaving, the impact that would have on the identity of the city, you know, being the council that lost the team because they weren't willing to step up to the plate. It feels to me like cities have often not been in a very good negotiating position. They just haven't really kind of had a really good understanding of what the um, sports teams and sports industry should be giving back to the city. Like there, it, there's been a little bit of the math has been off. Well, I think maybe that there's plenty of math to say it's wrong. 
Um, but they, as you pointed out, they don't want to be the council that lost the team. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's always a city that will take it. And there's always a city that says, I'll put up the money. I see that uh, the the Raiders, Oakland Raiders, are thinking of moving to Las Vegas. Now, the owner's saying he'll put down $500 million, but probably the stadium will be over a billion. So Las Vegas will be looking to, to do that. Uh, I'll give you an example, Milwaukee. Uh, they they need a new stadium. The fact that they don't get a new stadium for the basketball team, that's the team's going to move. And the governor gave him $200 million and he took it out of education. So there's this trade-off. And um, so I, I'm against that. And I've spoken out pretty aggressively against that. I, I think rich owners can handle it themselves. Because it's not unlike what happens in other areas of urban development where cities are in many ways competing with each other. Um, we're talking about sports teams, but they're often competing for industries. And so you end up in this situation where there's a very high level of tax forgiveness in order to attract- The automotive an industry. Indi- well, it's a, it's a perfect case in point, And it raises really important questions because you start to get to a situation where, you know, going back to your point that there's always a city that will take the team, you start to get in sort of a lowest common denominator, whatever city is is willing to um, accept less from a team or require more funding, more incentives, you end up having cities really playing off against each other and sort of everybody loses out. So, you know, if, if I was mayor or I was on council, would I bend to the pressure? You don't know. Yeah, it's, you don't it's, know. It's your do values, you? right? You and I have talked about values. Yes. Would you lead with your values? And, you know, my values say there's more important things in, than stadiums. And I don't think you need, you know, I compare Air Canada Centre to a the the frame of a B-52 bomber. The B-52 bomber's been around since 1950-something. And what they do is they keep changing the weapon systems and the computers. I, I believe that stadium can last for a long, long time because it keeps spending money to keep it current. So don't, don't go build yourself another stadium. Go try to stick up a city council in 20 years for a new stadium. Just continue to invest in what you have and it'll remain current. So um, I think there's some good advice there. Uh, we haven't really talked at all about winning and the importance of winning and how winning fits into this. Um, and I am amazed. I think my my son has had two or three Raptors days at school already where, you know, all the kids are showing up in their Raptors jerseys and there's a lot of excitement. How important is winning to a city? Well, first of all, for the for the team, winning is good business. Winning championships is great business. And, you know, we would take a lot of criticism, the people who, you know, ran the Raptors and the Leafs. And I always said, we took it doubly hard. I mean, we were fans, so we hated the losing as fans. And that was our avocation. Our vocation was answering the phones the next day, selling hot dogs. They always said the hot dogs don't taste as good when you're losing. <laughs> and uh, so we we hit it doubly. Uh, so winning's really, really important. And it's, it's, it's the psyche of the city. Like, you know, did was there a monkey on the back of the Raptors this year? I guess so. Uh, it sure seemed pr- everyone was pretty tight. Um, so winning's better. You know, we talked about Boston. All three of those teams have won recently. Uh, so that's a lot better than losing. I think you see in the life of a city um, that people just interact with each other in a different way when the teams are winning. Yep. There's a conviviality that yep, emerges in the 100%. city. And it's something that happens in the street. It happens in parks. It happens in the workplace. It's something that affects us in a very, very deep way. And it might 
be that that's the reason why municipalities, when they're sort of getting stuck up, they put their hands up and they put the money on the table is because the power of having that winning team does flow into so many other parts of everyday life. Do you think that's true? Well, it's interesting. By the way, I think that is the end result. I'm not sure if that's part of the wane, other than the mayor might be a baseball fan or a football fan is willing (laughs) to do that. Uh, But there's no doubt that it makes the city better. And you're right, coming down here on the subway, I saw a lot of Leaf jerseys, not Leaf jersey, uh, Blue Jay jersey. I didn't see a Raptors jersey, but we'll see that as we get closer to the game. Richard, could you tell me a little bit from your perspective, how does um, how does sport and having uh, professional teams in a city impact everyday life? One of our values was to be leaders in the community, and, and we did that by all the investments I talked about. But uh, we also did programming. We we got into the neighborhoods and we refurbished courts and pitches and and uh, rinks. And we did a lot of programming. We did stuff in the schools. So what's one of the big issues today with youth? Um, one, they're, they're, they don't have something to be focused on. So they're standing on the corner getting in trouble, but even more so obesity. So I believe that that teams that reach out into the community, engage the community, invest in that. Um, that's that's really important for the city. The interesting thing, the things we invest in putting basketball f- basketballs in the hands of, of, of young people 20 years ago, those people are all buying season tickets today. Absolutely. Some of those kids are playing in the NBA today. So it's, it's good all around to be doing it. It's very good for the school. And I think one of the real plus, pluses of having professional sports franchise. Well, and to link this back to winning, uh, we went to register our 10-year-old son uh, in his little league this year, and uh, which we do every year. This is his third or fourth year playing. And this year, it was full. And it was full because of what happened with Jays last year. Yep. Has created this absolute surge in terms of young kids wanting to get on the field and wanting to play. So I also think there's a connection between winning and the way people start to think about sport in their community. That's you know one of the things you see very clearly after the Olympics is held in a specific city, as an example. Well, I can remember as a kid growing up in Windsor watching the Detroit Tigers in the World Series and... And after they beat who St. Louis, I think uh, my brother and I would run out in the front lawn and throw the baseball around. So of course, of course. Well, and I, you know, I have to confess, I'm out every day after work. I'm out on the street with the baseball, and Lewis is pitching to me. We're out there together every day. <laughs> I'm that mom, and uh, and I totally love it. But he is um, completely glued to his team. He knows all the stats, and uh, it's very inspirational for for kids. And it links in directly to creating an active city and having. Uh, an engaged community where people are out playing and participating in their communities. One of the things we uh, we talked a little bit about the impact um, and the role of municipalities with respect to, let's say, luring teams. But what about major sporting events? Yeah, that that's different. I, I, the major sporting events, whether it be the NFL final game or the uh, NBA, NHL, all-star games, they bring so much visibility to the city. And in many cases, you can prove they have an economic impact. Let's take, for instance, the NBA all-star game. To the detriment of season seat holders, they most of the seats are from people that are out of town. They're the sponsors, the VIPs, the, the players from yesterday. And they all come and stay in the city and eat in the best restaurants and, and uh, you know, have the limousines. They bring a lot of money in it. So they're worth having. And um, I think that 
you know, they, they have a cost. You, everybody wants that next all-star game. So you have to bid on it. And that's where I think the city has to step up. Uh, is there an exhibition place they need for fan zone? Well, frankly, they should throw that in. Uh, should they pick up the big party on Friday night? Yes, they should. Uh, should they have banners all over the city announcing the fact that it's that's happening? Because they're going to get so much visibility and an economic impact. And everyone's going to, it's going to be pretty special. Um, you know, there's a lot going on. I mean, the All-Star game here for the NBA was very, very good. And, and I know MLSE has a whole bunch of stuff planned for the next year. It's interesting because it comes back to being able to um, create moments in the life of the city where people can coalesce around a shared experience. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, that's what cities are. Cities are about the experiences that we share collectively because we all live together. And sport can become a really powerful tool for facilitating those memorable moments. And facilitating uh, almost city esteem, -esteem. self-esteem. And I see that when, you know, cities, uh, Windsor again, I'm very familiar with Windsor. They need a self-esteem injection and, uh, you know, Toronto, every city can use it, but the city feels really good about, boy, we're getting this event and this event and this event. We're one of the world's great cities. So, um, Richard, this has been very interesting, uh, fascinating. In fact, you've um, sort of touched on a whole variety of different challenges, I think, that we face in trying to negotiate how we integrate sports teams into our cities. Thank you very much for coming in today. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Cities hold our hopes and dreams. And nothing embodies this more tangibly than our sports teams. I'm Jennifer Kiesmat, and this is Invisible City. Invisible City is a product of Freeman House, a creative agency based in my beautiful city, Toronto. Each episode of Invisible City features an original score by Freeman House. This episode was written by me, Jennifer Kiesmat, and produced by Ryan Freeman. All of our episodes are on our website, invisiblecitypodcast.com. Invisible City.